And so I just feel like I'm hearing all of this in a tunnel because I, I don't even understand what she's saying. Like, I can't even think about what is happening. And I just interrupted her and I just said, okay, but what are the chances that she has this? I'm confused. And she said, the doctor would be surprised if she didn't. Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. And today I have the very first official episode of season eight, Madison's story. Madison is absolutely lovely and was a joy to talk to. In this conversation, Madison shares the story of finding out that her four-year-old daughter has GLUT1 deficiency syndrome. We also discuss feeling imposter syndrome within the disability community. Have you ever felt that because other parents and kids have it worse than you, you don't have license to complain or struggle? Yes, we have too. It's super toxic and super common. And we discuss several other highly relatable issues. I just know that this one will have you nodding your head in understanding. For those of us who have received an overarching diagnosis for our children, receiving the diagnosis is something that we will probably never forget, as is evident in all of these story episodes. It almost always comes with a long list of complications and disabilities, and, especially if it's rare, even more questions and fears than we had before we had the diagnosis. Ignorance surely is bliss in some ways, but at the same time, knowledge is power. A diagnosis can give us an important roadmap, or at least some semblance of one. Both sides of this coin were true for us when we received Kimball's incredibly rare genetic diagnosis shortly after birth from a company that many of you have used or at least heard of, GeneDX. They are dedicated and determined to help us find answers as quickly as possible. Did you know that it takes an average of six to eight years to finally get a specific diagnosis for a child? I cannot believe that. (laughs) It's ridiculous. They are working hard to change that as they are proponents for full exome testing as soon as there is a suspicion of a genetic syndrome at play. They know that the diagnosis can be a first step towards taking measures to improve our children's quality of life and in creating a treatment plan, which is so important. When I first connected with some of the employees at GeneDX, I was delighted to find out that a lot of them are listeners to the podcast, seeking the parent perspective, which I think is so cool and speaks to the heart of that company. They truly care about families like ours and the ways that rare disease affects our lives in very deep and everyday ways, which is also why they chose to partner with us in bringing this important episode to you. So a huge thank you to GeneDX for their support and important work in the world of rare disease. You can learn more about them at genedx.com. Okay, a little more about Madison, and then we'll dive right in. Madison lives with her family in Texas. She is a full-time student and is the communications coordinator at the GLUT1 Deficiency Foundation, which I know has been a really cool experience for her. She is a lover of Dr. Pepper and of watching Gilmore Girls. All right, let's hop to it. Hi, Madison. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. I know that we've you know chatted off the hook many times before, and I'm excited to kind of share our conversations more in episode form and to get way more in depth. So I would love to just jump right in and start with, I mean, you know this because you're a listener, but the first moment that you found out that like Eleanor had anything going on medically or disability-wise. 
So I would say Eleanor's story started from the get-go. She was born two months early and she was immediately taken to the NICU. I met her nine hours later. And when I went in, she had everything that a typical preemie would have. So she had the BiPAP, she had an OG tube, all the things. And she did really well in the NICU. She weaned off of everything really quickly except for she did have an NG tube towards the end. They switched it to an NG tube and she still had a hard time maintaining her temperature. And aside from that, there were two episodes in the NICU where she desatted. And at the time they said that they thought that they were aspiration episodes where she was aspirating. One time was with a bottle and one time was without. And I was only there for one of the episodes, but since then I've kind of had it in my head wondering if those were, apnea seizure episodes mm. and they just weren't detected they were just kind of looking at her as a preemie and thinking that it was just aspirating and so at this point they're saying all the medical stuff she has all interventions are because she was born early nothing else right that's what your understanding was yeah and i had a lot of faith in that at the time you know a lot of faith that they knew what they were doing and she was just a preemie and everything was going not normal but normal you know yeah. normal for the situation and so we were discharged from the hospital at 20 days which was kind of the beginning of me thinking it could be worse. You know, everybody was telling me it could be worse. And I felt like we were going home with a normal, typical baby. Everything was normal now. We got to reset and go home typically. And she was four pounds when she was born, four pounds, four ounces. And at this point she was five pounds. So she was itty bitty tiny. And we took her home. We were home for about two weeks and she was struggling keeping her temperature elevated. So. We went whenever she was six weeks old to the hospital she was born in to just get evaluated and try to see how we can get her temperature back up. They're not a children's hospital, so they dismissed us basically, <laughs> made sure that she was eating and then sent us home. And the next day her temperature was really low. And so we were up all night. It was summertime. So we were trying to put her outside. Like what, what can we do to keep her temperature elevated? Cause she's so little and it just wasn't coming back up. So we called a pediatrician and he recommended that we go to the children's hospital the next day. So we go there and they take it a lot more seriously. They're looking more at infection. They were thinking maybe it's an infection and that's why her temperature can't come back up. And they were looking heavily into meningitis. Hmm. Because of that, it just fluke. They happened to do a lumbar puncture in the ER that day. And they recommended that I leave, but I had been taken out of so much of the motherhood journey already with her in the NICU for so long that I didn't want to, I wanted to stay, which I've never not regretted that I stayed during mm -hmm. that. But she stayed in the hospital for about three days at that point. And as things were resulting, everything was normal except for low glucose in her spinal fluid. And they didn't seem overly concerned at that time about the low glucose. And they just kind of said, babies are weird. Sometimes their labs come back weird and she's a preemie. So go home. She's good. So we went home and it was about three days later that I was holding her and I was making a bottle. It was early in the morning and she was sleeping and she woke up and stirred a little bit in my arms. And I looked down and she just jolted and her eyes flew open and she started turning completely blue in the mm -hmm. face and her body was deep red and she was flailing. And with all of this talk of aspiration, they had taught me how to do aspiration techniques, like what to do in that moment. And so I started doing everything, you know, as clear as I could 
everything that I could do to try to relieve that from her and nothing was working. None of it was working. So it lasted for about 45 seconds to a minute, which that's so long. (laughs) So (laughs) it was so long. And so still with aspiration in my head, I didn't take her to the ER immediately. I called the pediatrician first and just wanted to report it to him to tell him that it was happening. And he on the phone said, I'm looking through her lab results from the hospital and the glucose in her spinal fluid was severely low and it puts her at risk for a rare form of epilepsy and you need to take her in immediately. Oh my gosh. Of course, I have no information on what's happening. I have no information. I call my husband at work and I mean, I'm just in tears and he's in tears and we're running to the hospital and we get there to the ER and they admit her and they do an EEG. It's a 45 minute EEG and they do an EKG and they just kind of monitor her for three days. And just really quick, just for people who aren't familiar, that's like the sensors on their head, right? To test for a seizure activity. Yeah. So they tested for seizures with the EEG and they did mention that the EEG was so short that it doesn't necessarily rule out seizures but that she was presenting really well and they didn't feel super concerned and they sent us home on reflux medication what yeah that was not (laughs) reflux oh my gosh it was so bizarre and actually looking back on the medical records the very first medical record from the first time she was in the hospital with the low temperature the very first time said that it was suspected glute one deficiency syndrome what and was just never mentioned i went through it the other day to prepare for this and i was shocked oh my gosh it said that on there yeah okay can we talk really quick like just on that note because i am feeling this today like especially with other stuff going on but like the patronizing calming of medical professionals of like it's fine it's whatever calm down and especially with that we're like they had that as a suspicion it's like tell me that that's a suspicion that i get it's not like conclusive like tell me oh they didn't even act concerned i mean there wasn't even really a large concern so i felt comforted you know i wasn't concerned really at all at this point they sent us home on the reflux medication we started the reflux medication i was a new mom and i just was like we're gonna do the reflux medication so you were like oh we're good they said we're good so we're good yes because i don't know why it felt better and i feel like that was a way for me to feel better about it yeah you want it to be true like you want that to be the case yeah i needed to believe it wholeheartedly (laughs) So a few days later, it was completely unrelated, but they were looking into meningitis and her soft spot started swelling a few days after we got home from the hospital. And it was a really, it was still an unexplained event. We have no idea what happened, but when we went back to the ER, they were concerned again about infection and they wanted to do another lumbar puncture, which was in the same week. Is that the same as a spinal tap? Yeah. So they went into her spine in her lower back, my little five pound baby. Oh bent gosh. over yeah it was traumatic still traumatic years later it's still it's one of the worst yeah. things we've had to do and so they did that and we stayed in the hospital for a few days because it was really swollen they were pretty concerned at this point and they were doing scans and everything was coming back normal and her head did go back to normal and everything was going well but with that second lumbar puncture it kind of sealed the deal for them and they gave us finally a referral to genetics and told us to go there and it was a month and a half that we had to wait to go to genetics so it was a long time yeah so what was going through your head at that point were you like oh my gosh like something's going on or were you like oh it's probably fine it's probably fine like what was your thought process i thought we were just going to rule things out 
they were so not bothered by it that mm -hmm. I wasn't bothered by it. And I didn't think I should be. I didn't really know that I should be because these things happen to everyone else. It doesn't yeah. ever yeah. happen to you, you know? So in my head, I'm just thinking, oh, we're good. Everything's good. So in this month and a half, we're still seeing things. And she's a preemie. So again, I've told preemies do weird things. And the pediatrician is telling me that. And we pull up to the Children's Specialty Center. And shame on me, but it was the first time in my life that I've ever been so confronted by disability. And so we got there at opening. So you see a ton of families going in at the same time. And there are kids in wheelchairs and kids with feeding pumps and all of these things. And to the point where I looked at my husband and I said, I kind of feel bad for taking our healthy baby into this center. I'm like wasting the doctor's time, basically. Mm. We get into the room and there's a genetic counselor and there's a social worker. We're like laughing and talking and everything's very light. She's asking about family medical history. And then we get into the conversation and she just said, Eleanor's results from the hospital are concerning and the blood glucose is fine, but the spinal glucose is not. And she brought up GLUT1 deficiency syndrome for the first time I had ever heard it. And she explained it and explained that the body has something called a GLUT1 transporter and it transports glucose from the blood to across the blood brain barrier to the brain and the brain functions on glucose and Eleanor's brain doesn't have that. And so basically it causes some metabolic energy crisis throughout her body. And she told me she may never walk. She may never talk. Some of these people have seizures daily, sometimes hundreds a day, overall intellectual disability and difficulty with her muscles, a lot of muscle disorders and tremors. And so I just feel like I'm hearing all of this in a tunnel because mm -hmm. I, I don't even understand what she's saying. Like I can't even think about what is happening. And I just interrupted her and I just said, okay, but what are the chances that she has this? I'm confused. And she said, the doctor would be surprised if she didn't. Hmm. And so I went to the bathroom because I'm still like a kid. I'm just a new mom. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I texted my mom. And I told her, I was like, I think that they have the wrong baby. In my head, I was trying to cope with it. And I think that that coping mechanism that I had was just to believe it wasn't her. And maybe they just had the wrong chart. My husband and I said nothing to each other until we got in the car. And the way I knew he felt the same way as me was he looked at me as soon as we got in the front seat. And he just said, wait, do they think that she has that? And we were just both in shock. It was devastating to hear that. So we spent the next two weeks just in research. We looked up GLUT1 deficiency syndrome. We looked up the GLUT1 deficiency foundation and it's just ran by parents. And it was just a world I didn't know existed. And we really struggled with the fact there was only 500 people ever diagnosed. And so we really mm -hmm. struggled trying to even find information on GLUT1 deficiency syndrome. Yeah, which like is such a hard part of like the rare factor, right? Because it's like disability itself feels really unknown and othered and scary. Like you were talking, like walking in there like, oh my gosh, look at these families dealing with these things. That's what yeah. other people deal with. But then also to be like, and the grouping that she's being put into is like, there's such little known about it too. So I feel like that just adds to an already like really unknown feeling. And was that, what was that like too? I wonder like, walking in, looking around, like, man, we don't really belong here. I feel kind of bad with my really healthy baby. And then being like, wait, are they saying we're one of them? 
Yeah. The feeling I had walking out was so different from how I felt walking in. We still go to appointments at the same center and I've always felt the same way I felt walking out that day, walking back in. Almost a sense of belonging, but like a sense of, I wish I didn't belong. And so I definitely felt that. Like a shift all of a sudden. Yeah. Oh, wow. We waited two weeks for their genetic results and they called us and said that she did not have the mutation and that she was good. What? Okay, but like we know she wasn't, right? Like that was not good. Yeah, it was not good. Gosh. They just told us to follow up with neurology for the next two years. So flash forward to she's 18 months old. She's been behind in every milestone. And she went to daycare. We started getting reports from her teacher that she was having staring episodes. And she also, I know whenever I was putting her to bed every night that she was having eye movement episodes, which I know now are very telltale signs of group one deficiency syndrome. They're called aberrant gaze saccades. And it just is seizure activity happening. And we saw all of these things happening and the neurologist that we were seeing just didn't really want to do any more testing or do anything. They just wanted to follow her. And mm -hmm. we decided to go to a different neurologist to see what was happening. And we went to the new neurologist and she wanted to do all new testing. She just wanted to start fresh and start clean. So she did the first EEG in office and it came back abnormal. And so we went to the hospital for a 48-hour EEG to check for seizures, and it was, again, abnormal. So then they sent us to an MRI that was abnormal and a CT that was abnormal, and they wanted to do a PET scan, which came back normal at first until it was further looked into later, and it was abnormal. And the doctor just said, I don't feel comfortable diagnosing her without doing another lumbar puncture. Mm -hmm. Now she's 20 months old and has to have another lumbar puncture done. So we go, and I'm still feeling so hopeful. Looking back, everything was pointing towards this, but I just felt like it was probably okay. And they did the lumbar puncture and called me a few days later and said it was even lower than the first ones. And the neurologist just said, it's so rare, and I don't feel comfortable diagnosing her without the genetic mutation. And I'm going to collaborate and we're just going to see. And I didn't want to collaborate. I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to finish it up and get the diagnosis. So we called a genetic counselor that I found through the foundation. I just called her office and talked to her. We live in Dallas. She recommended a doctor in St. Louis. So we went to the doctor in St. Louis who was more familiar with GLUT1. And she all but diagnosed her on the spot and just wanted it to be confirmed through the research doctor that is in Dallas. Luckily, he only sees GLUT1 patients, so we couldn't see him up to this point. Wow. And he confirmed it. And she told us that there was 10 to 15% of patients that don't have the mutation, which we were unaware of. So all this time that wow. she hasn't been diagnosed because she doesn't have the mutation, she's actually just in this smaller population of a very small few, like 50 to 60 people that have ever been diagnosed that don't have the mutation. And so to that point, you probably had no idea that there was still a chance. Like, was that confusing to you? Like, why are we still looking into this if she came back negative for the genetic testing? Yes, I knew that something was wrong. If it was not GLUT1, we have to rule GLUT1 out was kind of my yeah. feeling at the time. And so the only treatment right now is a ketogenic diet to basically swap the fuel for the brain into ketones. It's a very rigid medical diet. And so they wanted her to start almost immediately. 
they put her into the hospital two months after diagnosis and she's had just turned two at that point and she started on the ketogenic diet and it was good and she actually went into ketosis really easily but on the flip side went into acidosis really easily because of it and so we were in the hospital for a long time like about a week and a half just getting into the diet and they slowly weaned her back off of the strict ratio diets for medical keto and onto a modified atkins diet where we just count carbs and we give her sources of fat through like mct oil she can't have normal children's medication because it has sugar in it so she also can't swallow pills so we were crushing pills and putting them just in her drink and putting mct oil in her water and giving her heavy whipping cream to drink anything mm -hmm. to just up her fat a little bit and so we were doing really well on that and really we saw huge improvements she went from having daily seizure activity to none at all wow. and she really started to be more balanced and she started therapy and things started really improving she started talking a little bit too in the next couple months and then things were going great until they weren't and we now had a new symptom where she was vomiting uncontrollably for days at a time we went to the gi doctor after she had already been hospitalized a couple times and she was diagnosed with cyclic vomiting they put her on cyclic vomiting medication which really helped her but it does still flare up whenever she's sick and so every time she gets sick we're back at square one in the hospital oh man so last year we decided to go the g-tube route to avoid all of the ng tubes which is like a game changer right when we switched to g-tube it was like you don't have to thread it down their freaking like throat oh my gosh <laughs> and it was such a hard decision to make for some reason like we had a really hard time making that decision because it just feels mm -hmm. so permanent but yeah he's really doing much better and it's going a lot better and i think where she is now is just way further than what I would have imagined that she would have been from the very beginning. Mm. We still have problems and we're still having problems with the cyclic vomiting and we're weaning her off of the diet right now, which is terrifying oh. to try an experimental treatment, but mm. hopefully it goes well. We're on like week two and I think in two weeks we'll start the experimental oil and we'll see how that goes. We're nervous, but. Whoa. And paving the way for future families, right? With that same yeah. syndrome. So. I hope so. Yeah. Mm, that is exciting. Scary. And scary. But it's good. All the things. <laughs> you mentioned this at the very beginning of the episode, but like, I wonder like if you've continued to feel like you said it was the first time you felt, man, is my daughter like too well to be here or does she count as being disabled enough, which I resonate with as well. So do you still feel that way like now? I do. You know, we're in the G-Tube community. So I'm like, you know, on G-Tube Facebook pages and the epilepsy community and all of these different communities that we kind of fit somewhere in between them. But I just still feel like this sense of imposter syndrome where we don't really belong. We don't really belong in the normal world either, but I just feel like we don't also don't mesh fully with the medical community. It goes back to, to the, it could be worse kind of situation where you do see other kids that have it worse than Eleanor does. And like, who am I to be complaining about where we are? Is kind of how I always feel. It's such a weird spot to it be. It is. Well, I was thinking about it earlier. I was like, I think it's just like this huge need that we have as humans to be long and to be like, hey, what group do I fit in? And clearly you and I don't really fit in like the typical healthy child category. And so it's like, hey, but like, 
in this other category, the loudest voices, too, tend to be the ones with, like, more, not more issues, but kind of, like, more medical complexities, more disabilities. Yeah. And so then it can kind of feel like, well, if I complain about this, like, if it's a social media post or something, like, how would that make them feel? Like, if I see my, yeah. like, my sister-in-law with a healthy child complaining about teething, I mean, how does that make me feel, you know? And so I think yeah. that thought is definitely prevalent in my world as well. It's a hard one. It's a hard one to think. Because I look at other people with typical children and I think what I would not give to be there and to have a typical parenting journey and for my child to have a typical childhood. And then I look on the other side of it and I think that these parents of kids with more medical complexities, what they wouldn't give to be dealing with this, you know? Yeah. And so I just kind of feel like we're just between two rocks, which is really yeah. difficult. But I also feel like, who am I to say that's really difficult? It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, man, is that really what I'm complaining about? Is like that yeah. I can't fit in oh, with like. For me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, I think like, so the case for Kimball and Eleanor are like similar in that when they were younger, they were a lot sicker and a lot more medically complex and things have kind of like leveled out. And so I think that adds to it too, because you're like, we've been through way worse. So like things are so much better now. So like. I think even that comparison, like within like your own experience with it and your child's experience with it, where it's like, oh, but I just can't complain right now because things are so good relative to how they were. I fully agree. It's it's just imposter syndrome. I don't even know like another word for it, but that's just kind of the word that I've come to terms with where I just feel a major feeling of imposter syndrome in the medical community. And I work for the Glute 1 Deficiency Foundation now. And even in that community, there's people with a more complex version of glute one deficiency. And so also, who am I to be preaching on there and, you know, doing all these things with the foundation and get this big opportunity when other people have it worse, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The comparison within syndromes. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I don't know. It's like no one wants to be that like, I don't want to say worst case, but like the most affected version but you do feel like that kind of does give a trump card to like, I have all authority right. to complain or have all authority to like be upset about this. Yeah. It is silly because it's like, of course, this is a ridiculous thing to be like thinking, but it's a very real thing. And I know that we're not the only ones that feel this way. And I think probably part of it is like comparing the like non-medically complex world and then the medically complex world where like we see it kind of black and white, I think, like they are healthy and they are not. And where do I fit? Because we're kind of in between when in reality, it's like there's a huge just spectrum, right, of like the healthiest, right. most typical child all the way down to like the sickest, most disabled child. And we fit somewhere in between there. And we want to identify with one or the other, right? Like I think that's a natural human thing. And how could you possibly relate or identify as the healthy, non-disabled, non-medically complex world ever again. I don't know that I ever really could. I think I always will feel other from that. And I'm okay with that at the same time. Yeah. I don't know if you feel that. There's like a certain pride of like, I'm not one of you. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Anyway, just some thoughts I've been having about that. It's weird. And Eleanor's very typical presenting. Unless you saw sometimes the way that she moves or the way that she runs or certain delays, you can tell. And it still is one of those things where even in target I'm walking through and people look at her and don't think anything different and almost you know whenever she's like throwing a fit they just think that she's a bratty toddler oh. and I'm like she's so not she's really not but I almost feel like I over explain it to people 
trying to defend where we are in this world. It's weird. It's a hard thing to feel. Yeah. The invisible disability world is like so tricky. I know I've heard like adults talk about this as well as like when they have chronic illnesses that are not visible to like outside people that don't know them well. And so it's like, don't judge me. Like you do not understand. There's a whole lot more going on here than you realize. Oh, yeah. And so like another thing we've talked about is (laughs) there are a lot of similarities in our situations, but like overcompensating, not even over, just trying to compensate our children for the struggles they have and that they've been through like all the trauma like it's a big issue in in our parenting that we're trying to figure out we're like this instinctual like it's a deep-rooted desire to give Kimball whatever the freak he wants and to like protect him from all possible just normal life hard things like I'm like no you've reached your max you know you've reached the limit I want to protect you and shield you from all these things that are just part of life and actually I know it's not very good for him either, you know? And so anyway, that's like a really tricky thing to navigate, especially with like the dynamics between Wendy and Kimball is touchy too because of that, because I'm shielding him constantly. And I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I'm being very fair as a parent, which is a whole other thing, but. Yeah. I'm judged for it. I feel at least in my head, I'm so judged for the overcompensation. I mean, do we buy her something every time we go somewhere? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But do I also feel like I've lost out on the chance to see my child in a happy moment so many times? Yeah, I feel like I have lost that. And I feel like she's lost that, the trauma that she's felt. And she doesn't get the chance to live. And it makes me sad. She doesn't get the chance to live a normal childhood. The other kids get to live where she's sheltered already from hospitalizations and all these big, scary things, you know, she's been sedated more times than I've even been sedated for things. It's a scary thing for her to go through. And she doesn't get the feeling of being a kid, that freedom. She has those fears. And so, of course, I would want to change that. Of course, I would want to give her things to compensate for that. Yeah. I feel like anyone would. (laughs) Yeah. I do think it kind of begs the question of like, is it bad? Or is it just like, yeah, it is what it is. And we're going to do it. and We're fine with it, you know? Yeah, I agree. People will say things in the medical community a lot too. say things like, you know, I wouldn't change this. I wouldn't change it for the world or this story has made me stronger or this journey has made me stronger. And I just disagree. I would change every single bad thing that's ever happened. And the overcompensation can look different for everyone. But for me, it just happens even daily. (laughs) Just her not getting in trouble for something or hearing like grandma or grandpa get onto her for something. And I just feel the need to save her. And of course I would save her, you know, like, of course I would want to save her from all the negative things after everything that I've seen her go through. Yeah. I think there's like, at least for me, like there's kind of this feeling of almost wanting to level the playing field a little bit of you see like, oh, this is what their lives quote unquote should have been like, like, right. Their childhood should have been full of park dates not hospitalizations and invasive testing and all this and so like I think there's an attempt to like almost like manufacture like the joy that they missed out on like you said like the pleasant parts of life I think there's also this feeling and I don't know if you had this but like especially in the earliest days where I was looking at Kimball and just thinking your life has been hell like I haven't seen much joy at all and that's a really horrible way to feel about your child to be like well, shoot, dang, like, what can we do to make your life, like, have joy? Right. 
Eleanor was just, she was in the hospital like a week and a half ago we got out and she's always sick in the hospital. So we've never been able to go to the playroom or anything. And so this time we did get to go to the playroom. I was just sitting in there with her and the window overlooked like an outdoor play area and all these kids were playing and doing all this stuff. And it was just this juxtaposition between my life and her life and those lives out there. And I could just see all these kids playing and doing all this stuff. And was Eleanor thrilled to be in the playroom? Yeah, she didn't feel any of that. She was so happy to be in there and excited and they had a Paw Patrol tower and she was gung-ho, she was excited. But she doesn't know that she's missing out on that. And I do, I see her and I see it through such a different lens and it's just hard. (laughs) It's a hard feeling. It is. It's very unfair. And I think you articulated that super well, like the difference between their awareness of it and ours, and especially when they're young or if they have like cognitive differences that like delay understanding or whatever. But like, it's just as the parent, you're the mama bear, the papa bear, like you want to protect them and you want things to be fair because it just really isn't right for them to be missing out on those things. I agree. We also don't know what the future looks like. Glute 1 deficiency syndrome can just evolve so much. And so right now is really probably the easiest time that she'll have. And things are going really well right now. And we don't know what that looks like in the future. I can see other patients and I can see kind of where they are, but we don't know if she'll ever move away from us. We don't know where she'll be 20 years from now. And so that overcompensation, just if I can start now and I can keep going, I just feel like I can make it all better. (laughs) All of it. Oh, yeah, that adds a whole other layer, man. If you're, like, waiting for the other shoe to drop, that is so hard. Yeah, definitely a bad feeling to feel as a parent. Yes. This also kind of reminds me of, like, something else we've talked about before, which is kind of almost this feeling of, like, man, my child is handling this in a way that makes me wonder, like, are they stronger than I am, right? Like, as a parent, like, you see, like, all the things that they're going through firsthand or we're, like, going through secondary. And I'm not sure what it is, but there is kind of this, like, feeling sometimes of, like, our child that's going through the things, like, man, they are so strong and I feel really weak. Yeah, like, I see her in these really bad situations and she'll complain. She'll say that she doesn't want to do it or she doesn't want to get poked or whatever. But I also just see her at three years old, she gets a lot of finger pricks for ketones. And I just see her like at the hospital, she'll choose which finger and she'll tell them exactly where to poke it. And she just knows all these things and knows how to do all these things. And she just feels so strong. And I don't know how I've even done it for the past four years. Sometimes I look back on it and I just don't even know how I've gone through that. And she just was born knowing how. And I know that she didn't necessarily know how. She kind of grew to know how, and that's all she's ever known. But, yeah, she's stronger than me. But doesn't that make you mad, too? Like, I just think it's so unfair that they have to be that strong, right? Because you know that the reason that they are so resilient to these things is because that's their life. Oh, my gosh. Like, that right there, I think, breaks my heart. Like, one example in my life of watching this is just, like, Kimball has vision loss and... I mean, there's like other stuff too. We don't even know what exactly it is, but he falls and he used to more often than now, but he would fall a lot and it'd be summertime and he'd be walking around outside in just a diaper or with like these little booty shorts and he'd fall and fall and fall. And his knee was just, it was like a huge chunk of flesh actually missing like after a while because he'd fall in the same place again and again. He was just bleeding everywhere. 
didn't even flinch, just kept doing his thing. And I was like, does he have a nerve issue or is this really his pain tolerance? Because it broke my freaking heart. I was like, this should make you upset. Like, you should be crying right now. You should be well, yeah. throwing a huge fit right now. And you're just going on with life because, like, pain is not – it's not a stranger to you. And that is gutting. Yeah, their little pain tolerances are insane. And just watching her at home, like, she'll prick her own finger. She'll do oh. her own thing. And it's – the guts it takes for me to even work myself up to pricking my finger is <sighs> – it's sad and I cannot do it and so it's it's crazy just to like watch her be this version of a child I've just never known it was a world I never even knew existed and I always kind of feel and I've expressed this to my husband too but just we had a life before the medical world I had a life before having Eleanor and having any idea what medical complexities really I don't really know how to say that, but a life before I had any idea about this world existing and Eleanor never will. And just realizing like she has one life and this is it. That's been such a sore point for me just thinking. And that's always kind of what I go back to in my head is my life had a before and after. And I got the chance to have that normal childhood and that normal life, typical life. What is typical? I don't even know anymore, but Eleanor never will have that chance and i think that that's always heavy on my mind always <laughs> every day yeah going back to the compensation thing where it's like we know it's just a feeble attempt at the impossible like we can't we can't compensate them for what they've been through and that's gutting oh yeah your job as a parent is to make it better and when you know you can't what do you do then you know more stuffed animals. That's what you do. Right? A lot more stuffed animals. All the buzz toys. <laughs> <laughs> do you have thoughts about like future children or growing your family? Or are you kind of like, we're done? Is that a big question mark? Yeah. So we don't know our genetics. Since Eleanor doesn't have a genetic mutation, we've sent in for research studies and stuff, but nothing's really come back as anything problematic. But there still is a 50% chance is just what the research doctor says of us having another child with GLUT1. And I think we've battled with it a lot. And as things have gotten easier in Eleanor's journey, we've thought a lot more about having more kids. And I think I feel comfortable because I always kind of go back to if I knew Eleanor had GLUT1 deficiency syndrome before I had her, I wouldn't have not had her. You know, right. I, I, of course I would want her. So I want her to have that too. You know, I want her to have that experience. And I always try really hard not to, because I've always heard of glass children and that aspect of it. And I don't like to think of it as someone for her to have whenever I'm gone, because I don't want that responsibility on another child necessarily. Mm -hmm. That's a really bad way to put it, but that's kind of the way I see it. But I do want her to have family when I'm gone. You know, I don't want Eleanor to just be there whenever there's no more family left for her. So yeah. Well, and then there's also like the elephant in the room of like, so then if we don't have more children because of the syndrome, then is that just one more normal part of her childhood she would have had? You know what I mean? Like that's all as another yeah. thing being robbed from her, which I'm not trying to like say anything like you need to have kids. Like that's not what I'm trying to say. But like <laughs> that can be like definitely a sore spot too. Of Man, if we're trying to give her a normal childhood, would that include a sibling as almost like a guilt part of it? I don't know. Yeah. And she has a hard time playing with other kids her age. So I've just always kind of imagined 
this beautiful relationship that one day we would have another baby and Eleanor would have a little sibling and it would be this fantastic thing and maybe make her more comfortable with that too. Like just get her comfortable with peers. But again, you don't want to go back and say, I want to have another kid so Eleanor feels better. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, let me have this child. It'd be like this tool. <laughs> yeah. And I've watched a lot of like TED Talks and podcasts on kids that did grow up like that. And that just is, it's hard to think about putting another kid into this and knowing Eleanor would come first. But that sounds so bad. But knowing that if Eleanor goes to the hospital, so am I. I'm not going to be here. You know, I'm yeah. not going to be at home. I'm going to go to the hospital with her. And then where does that other kid go? You know, like your child, how do they fit in? Yeah, because the syndrome, it's not like this isolated thing like you guys carry as a family. And so if a child is born, even if they're born healthy and without the syndrome, they're still being very affected by the syndrome. Right. Yeah. They would always be affected. It would always yeah. be there. For better, for worse, right? Like there's some aspects of it, like, and I've heard from other families as well, where you're like, oh, I can see how this has changed them as a person in like a positive way. But like at the same time, they don't normally say this. I feel this where it's like, yeah, but they've also been through trauma. That's not fair to them either. It's not easy. Right. And I think it can screw things up quite a bit, too. So I, it's a very complex topic. It's such a hard topic. And it's even a hard topic between us, you know, just between my husband and I having that conversation and I'm often wishy-washy, always in the direction of having another baby, but we've just had conversations where we're like, I don't know, the one's good, or mm -hmm. I don't know, we should have another one. So it's always a hard conversation, but I do think one day that would be really nice. Yeah, that makes sense. Fear aside, it would be nice. <laughs> we'll handle that later. <laughs> we'll yeah. put a pin in it. <laughs> but I think feels pretty good. You don't need to feel like rushed into making a choice, which I think is, I mean, I guess there are factors maternal age and all that stuff. But in most cases, there's no rush and you can like process through and figure things out. And that can be nice to have that space. I would love to wrap up with one piece of advice that you would like to leave listeners. And I'm going to say specifically for other people who feel like they don't quite belong, right? Who have that guilt in sharing or guilt in identifying with the community or looking at other people and be like, oh, they belong in this community, but I don't really. Like, what would you like to say to those people? There's a place for everyone. And sharing your story and being open with your journey speaks to other people. And I've come across people who really spoke to me. And I think your story really speaks to me. And it's something I can really relate to. And just the more we put our stories out, even if we don't feel like we belong, the more people there are to relate to each other in this weird in-between. It's not your fault, you know? <laughs> Feels weird to even tell her story, but I'm not at fault and she's not at fault. So yeah. the more we share it, the better we can make the community. Yeah, because maybe part of that feeling is because that not gray area, but like the end of the spectrum, I guess, is very underrepresented. Maybe a lot of people feel that way and they don't share. And so we don't see yeah. people talking about that. And so then we feel weird sharing. So maybe we can all be the voice that like, no matter where you are in severity or spectrum or whatever, like everyone deserves to share their story and feel seen and help others feel seen. I agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Madison. This was so fun. It was great to hear more about your story. And I know that lots of these points will resonate with a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you. 
To connect with Madison, you can follow her on Instagram at Madison J. Hall. And that's Madison with two Ds. There's a link to follow her in the show notes. Her page is full of adorable photos of Eleanor and fam, so you will not regret it. You can also follow us at the underscore rare underscore life. A huge thank you to all those who made this episode possible, including our generous sponsor and partner, Gene DX. Check out their website for more info. Our lovely guest, Madison, for sharing your thoughts so vulnerably. My partner in parenthood and podcasting, Justin Cheney, for being our desk-side support for all things tech, which is a lot of things, including the website. Thank you to my incredible board of directors, including Brittany Stites, who is a rock star at assisting in fundraising so this podcast can continue changing lives. And lastly, a huge thank you to Alyssa Newtile, our contracted podcast producer, who handles all the things from episode editing to social media content creation. And thank you to each of you who have made donations to the podcast or shared it with others. You all make it possible. This podcast has gone from being a one-man band to having an incredible team, and that has been amazing. If you wish to make a donation, you can do so on our website, therarelifepodcast.com backslash donate. To those who haven't heard yet, we are thrilled to be an official nonprofit organization. We will keep you in the loop as to fundraising events and all the fun things. Okay, that was a lot. If you're still with me, let me tell you about the intense and beautiful episode coming out next week. It is an episode all about what it's like to either wonder if your child will pass away before you do or to know that they will. Anticipatory grief, complete dread and fear, all the things. Fear of losing our children is something we all live with and we're addressing it head on. I hope you join us and feel the therapeutic effects of hearing others express your darkest thoughts. Don't miss it. See you then.